This is the Cashflow Digest. My name is Matt Faircloth and me and the DeRosa team are here for you guys on a weekly basis with this podcast, YouTube video and broadcast recording. This is also live on our Facebook group, DeRosa Insiders. In whatever medium you're watching, please take a minute and like this content. Leave a comment and leave it a review. We really appreciate you guys doing that. And we're going to be talking about all things real estate and all things cash flow because our company is dedicated to transforming lives through real estate and cash flow can do that. We're going to be talking about things that are affecting the real estate industry, news in the real estate investing world. And we're also going to be bringing on guests that are crushing it in the cash flow sector of real estate investing. If you guys want to join and watch the show live, please go to Facebook and look up DeRosa Insiders and join that Facebook group where we record this show every Friday at noon Eastern. Hope to see you guys there. What is up, everyone? This is the Cashflow Digest. I'm Vinny Celeste. Matt's out this week. He's actually out in Costa Rica. Not as sunny over here in Charlotte, North Carolina, but happy to kind of take it up while Matt's away here. And we've got a really great show planned for us here. We've got a few great headlines I want to bring up here as, as our real estate news. But to kick things off, let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the real estate world today as I see it. Let me share with you all a headline I read that I felt was interesting enough to highlight here for the group. Those of you who are not privy to this information, uh, recently it was the idea of federal student loan forgiveness was struck down at Supreme Court. Now, it's not saying that it, it won't come back and reserving all opinions on it, although I will say I'm probably not for it myself, even though I have tons of debt. Let's say that didn't go through right the way that folks are planning on. But here's what's interesting. One in three federal student loan borrowers spent money that they otherwise wouldn't have spent counting on that forgiveness. And that's where I want to take this conversation. I, I want to talk a little bit about personal finance, what's going on in the housing market, and ultimately what's going to get us all closer to our goals of portfolio uh, the goal of our portfolio is personal finance first, right? So let's get into it, right? So the article went on to say that 44% of those folks that overspent spent it on retail. Now that's a that's a theme that we're probably all familiar with in you know, Americans spending a lot on, on retail. So 44% of the folks who overspent their otherwise uh, funds allocated to their student loans overspent it on retail. And then it's saying that 37% spent it on uh, other related debt. And I would guess that a lot of that is consumer debt, credit card debt, and that sort of stuff, right? So it just highlights the fact that generally speaking, we don't always do the best job of saving for the future. In case you're not familiar, right? There are a lot of really great loan products out there where you can get a personal house for as low as 3.5% down, 5% down. And if you're a veteran, even 0% down. There's some really great products out there, out there and folks don't always realize how achievable the goal of home ownership is. Uh, we see lots of headlines about how hard it is for millennials to buy houses, but headlines like this also point out that, you know, we don't always do the best job of saving, right? So just interesting stuff to point out. So to that effect, I looked at what the medium home price was in America. And apparently right now it's 436,000. That seems like a really big number and it is. Uh, but with 5% down, right, 3.5% down, actually, that comes out to 21000 about. With closing costs are probably about 25000 So I would be curious to ask those folks who maybe overspent on their federal loans if it maybe would make more sense to kind of hang on to this, especially 
because I saw some folks who know a lot about uh, real estate data. I always look up to David Meyer. He put out a really great post on Instagram uh, this week pointing out how it's actually the most unaffordable time to buy houses in the past 40 years, right? House prices are still relatively high. Mortgage rates are also high and income hasn't kept up. So all these factors together has made it the most unaffordable time. Now, when that changes, folks are going to want to be ready to pounce on those opportunities. And to be ready, we're going to have to save a little bit of money, get our house in order first, our financial house in order first, so we can capitalize when things inevitably change. That's what I hope for folks. That's what I wanted to bring up to everyone a little bit today. I hope we can take that message and kind of move forward with that. So let me know what you're all thinking in the comments. I'd love to hear any questions or thoughts about that. Uh, just something that jumped out in the Google uh, searches this morning, right? Looking at what's going on in the world. People might be overspending uh, a little bit and, and it's probably not news to a lot of the folks on here. So without further ado, let me bring on our guest for the day and uh, really honored to bring him in here. Matt, welcome. I'm really excited to bring you on. So first, I think, introduce yourself, catch us up. What have you been up to these days and kind of bring us up to speed on your your business and your line of work? Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on the show, Vinny. Um, what I've been up to these days, and people ask me this, is risk management. What I mean by that is I, I'm an active real estate investor and developer, and my background is in multifamily. We've always been opportunistic purchasers. Uh, over the past few years, we haven't been able to purchase any multifamily because the prices really haven't worked for what our return requirements are, risk-adjusted return requirements. So we actually pivoted into office and people thought we we're psycho for doing that. Um, but we were noticing that the investment community was kind of redlining office product because of COVID and uh, you know throwing the baby out with the bathwater so we were able to find some great deals that had really really strong office tenant bases um we just closed a deal that was a uh mostly government uh, tenants on super long-term leases and those government tenants are very very sticky um they stay at their properties for decades um and so uh right now we're sort of seeing pullback even in the office product segment there's uh our banks when we're asking for term sheets on deals that are like we believe are smoking hot deals because we're buying properties that are based upon current operating financials and current occupancy in place. So we can buy an office building that's 60% occupancy with great long-term tenants in place. And we're getting the 40% of vacant space for free. So whatever we lease up and cut deals on is, is basically all profit. Well, banks have gone from 75 to 80% down to 50 to 60% LTV that they're offering. So that is sort of giving us pause. So we're kind of all right, we're seeing the Federal Reserve is using monetary policy to suck liquidity and cash out of the system. So we're kind of seeing how that weighs out and just treating the assets we have uh, as best as we can and um, kind of still looking at opportunities, but not a lot has come up because the bid ask spreads have been still pretty wide. Right. No, thanks for that. I mean, that's a that's a great rundown because because you're someone who has had your hands in multiple different pots and and just like many of us are trying to find new ways to, to produce yield. And I think it's it's interesting that you found yourself in office space. And I love that you're bringing it back to loan to value. I feel like it's a uh, kind of unspoken about deal killer these days, right? Having to raise that much more money and as high as interest rates are, both of us, we hope our investors will make more than what the banks are going to make at, you know, even 6% or, or higher sometimes interest rate, right? So 
uh, having the, the difference between a 75% loan to value and now a mid 60s loan to value just causes you to have to raise much more and it can, can, can kind of be a deal killer. So always interesting to hear that. I'm curious about the office space though. Um, you have any desire for um, like shared workspace or, you know, that, that unleashed area, how creative are you getting? Uh, I, I know some folks are interested in conversions and that sort of stuff. What's the, the thought process there? That's a great question. So generally when we look in at a deal that has vacancy, um, the greatest amount of vacancy, at least in our market is in the 6,000 square feet plus um, office footprints. And what we look for on there is that, you know, if we have, let's say four of those suites and a deal that we're buying, you know, we'll first go to market to try cut, to cut a deal with a larger office user and, you know, rent it out at a really aggressive rate. Um, after a certain amount of time, if we're seeing the market speaking to us, we're not getting any activity whatsoever is what we look at is are those office footprints easily demisable down into smaller spaces? because where we're seeing the greatest amount of demand is in executive offices, businesses that are between even like one to five employees that need maybe uh, two private offices, uh, a little receptionary, and maybe a conference room. So we've done those conversions and have at least leased them up. Um, the downside to that is from a management intensity standpoint, because we are vertically integrated. We have our own management company and uh, when you add more tenants, uh, there's more management intensity, right? And generally those smaller office footprint users, they're not signing a five, seven, 10 year lease. They're signing maybe a two to three year lease max. Um, so that's kind of how we backstop, um, uh, you know, any sort of, uh, you know, unnecessary vacancy loss and, you know, vacancy loss uh, on those types of deals. But that's what we're seeing is the greatest amount of demand, but it's certainly not the first thing. I mean, you know, we have some share, you know, shared office use things. It works from a business standpoint. It works from a dollars and cents standpoint. But when you are managing the deal, then it becomes that much more management intensive. And also banks don't like to see commercial office spaces that are at, you know, on two and three year leases. They like to see longer duration leases. One thing I, I forgot to mention and um, it Matt's out in Rochester. Is that true? Are, are your offices in Rochester as well? You yeah. Know? Our entire portfolio is right around the greater Rochester area. If you don't know where Rochester is in the map, it's uh, east of Buffalo and west of Syracuse, probably about three hours away from Albany, uh, six hours away from New York City. Um, so that's where we are. We're, we're called the Finger Lakes region. So we have a lot of uh, fresh water around us. That's why I'm so bullish on the roster areas because, you know, in a hundred year time horizon, I believe that we have, you know, incredible resources. So that's where we're at in Rochester. We're a, we're a tertiary market. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I love that you go there too. I wonder, you know, that's going to definitely be, become more factors as time progresses, right? Uh, natural resources like that, especially beautiful places like upstate New York is gorgeous, right? With all the fresh water. And as, as remote work becomes more feasible, I wonder how we're going to see migration, um, you know, per, project out like that. You mentioned that you had some government residents. Uh, you know, I don't know if you call them residents actually in, for in-office space, but curious, I'm always curious about those leases. How long-term are they? Uh, I know that they're longer term and are they triple net? It really depends upon the type of user you're like, if you're renting a space to a mom and pop type of CPA or something like that, 
you know, when you start talking about triple net and, uh, you know, uh, expense pass throughs and all that stuff, you know, you can't require right. a CPA to get a, you know, a degree in real estate leasing and finance and stuff like that. So we find more on the small business side of things that they want, they just want to know what the hell their rent the is going to be. Yeah. All right. So, um, generally we'll have a lease that is called, you know, modified, what's called modified gross. So we'll establish a base year. So let's say if it's at 1650 a square foot and uh, there'll be plus utilities. Um, and we will have, we'll, um, reconcile operating expenses in the property at the end of the year. So if expenses, real estate taxes, repairs and maintenance, all that good stuff go up from your base year then we reconcile that at the end of the year and then bill that tenant back and then adjust their base rent going forward. So we can hedge our operating expense increases on those leases. Um, and we'll, you know, naturally increase the base rent, uh, you know, like let's say 3% or 2% per uh, year in those leases. And they're typically like between five, seven, five and seven years is mostly where, cause we don't have huge office tenants that occupy 30,000 square feet. We're talking about office tenants that occupy between three and 6,000 square feet or even smaller. So those people are just not in the realm of 10, 20 year leases like you see in other markets. Right. I want to take things back here, right? You, you've you had a pretty long and storied career of different asset classes. You've had a pivot a few times, not just in business, but in life and that sort of thing. Even, even a recent pivot into office space. How do you, what do you do to kind of plan out your business and plan out your success. What was your team look like as you do that? Yeah, I mean, I got my start in small multifamily residential, you know, two through four unit types of properties. Um, in the residential market, things are very transactional based. Stuff goes up on the inter on the MLS, and it, you like in a good location, you make an offer on it, you know, you bring it to a bank, you know, so on and so forth. One thing I really wasn't aware of is the how important relationships are when you are looking to swim upstream into larger uh, deals. So whether it's, you know, commercial office or commercial multifamily um, or industrial or whatever. Um, so those relationships with, uh, you know, your potential investment partners, those relationships with real estate brokers, because real estate brokers are a great source of off-market deals. So you have to intentionally widen your sphere um, by talking to new people and then also deepen the connections with those people you already have relationships with and doing that very intentionally. So those people don't forget about you. You know, I, I had a situation that happened. There was a retail property. We made an offer on six months ago. It was an off market deal and we didn't prevail. You know, we, uh, we were the highest bidder, but, uh, we weren't the cleanest offer. We had some contingencies in there. And so, and I've had a relationship with this broker, right? Uh, found out, you know, six months later that that deal died. And the only reason I found mm -hmm. out that a deal died is because it wound up on LoopNet. That broker never called me saying, Hey, Matt, you know, it looks like this deal is going to, you know, is going to, uh, is going to go back to the market. Do you want another crack at it? And that was my fault, right? I didn't talk mm -hmm. to that broker in six months. And so he didn't think of me. Uh, so that's really what's important, not just with broker relationships, but all of the relationships that are part of your team. I love the accountability there too. And that's really uh, very important. The larger real estate gets, the, the more important relationships are, especially with brokers and lenders as well. Could you talk a little bit about that? I'm curious um, how, how the office lending environment might differ from other types of assets. 
office, when you're looking at deals that are $20 million or less, you're going to be using a community bank or a regional bank. Typically in our market, in a tertiary market, that type of product, you're not going to have, you know, Fannie and Freddie agency debt, non-recourse and, you know, on a, you know, 30 year, 30 year mortgage and all that stuff. It's just not a thing. Uh, so those relationships with those lenders are really important. Uh, bankers, you may have not even done a deal with, but you've had that, you know, lunch with them and you keep in touch with them. You see them at industry events. Those people return your call when you call them with a deal. If you are somebody that they don't know from Adam and you just call somebody up that is even a referral, you know, they don't, they don't know you. They've never seen your face. They never gotten belly to belly with you. So even that relationship is, is important. Now, full disclosure of any, like we are not, you know, 70% of our portfolio is multifamily, you know, 30% is other asset classes in terms of office and industrial and all that stuff. So. Um, this is just an asset class that we pivoted into when we saw an opportunity, and I had background in, man in managing it because I'd done um, I'd done turnaround and value add deals on office before, and I had a proven track record. I knew what to do with those uh, with those deals in the process. I see, yeah, and, and that's I find that to be kind of the difficult part for a lot of folks starting out is it's such a um, it's such a track record dependent business right and everyone that you're building relationships with wants to see a, a history of success uh, but for folks just starting out I'm curious what what your first deal was like you know when, when you were starting out and any advice you might have for kind of starting to build that track record so the first deal i ever started out with was a four family i occupied one of the units and i rented out the rest and that's really where i got bit by the real estate bug my why associated with buying that deal was I was getting kicked out of my house, you know, mm -hmm. uh, not, it wasn't acrimonious or anything like that with my dad. It was just like, listen, man, it wasn't my, you know, dream to have a 20 something year old, uh, kid living with me. So I was used to not paying rent, you know? So I was like, okay, how can I synthesize that going forward? So that was the first deal that I did. And right when I did that deal was like, I need to scale this much bigger. I need to buy 50, 100, 150 unit apartment communities. Um, but I had this limiting belief that I had to be, I had to become big to go big, right? So I had to buy mm -hmm. a bunch of small multifamily. You know, I was kind of had this like monopoly kind of thing in my head, like, all right, well, first you gotta you gotta build three houses after you've established the monopoly before you can start building hotels. Right. Um, so for 13 years, I was banging my head against the wall, um, buying smaller multifamily that was considered residential um, in order to replace my own, my own income and become financially independent. And I found that, you know, I became financially independent, but then my wife was still working. She was a teacher. And so I was like, damn, am I going to have to work for another 13 years and building a portfolio to replace her income so I can, you know, do the whole dream with her? I can't go to Italy for a month uh, by myself because my wife is a teacher, right? So the major aha moment for me was when I did my first commercial deal it was a million dollar deal. Um, and that one deal alone replaced her income. Wow. And that was when I was like, I can't go back. And yeah, I was scared. I was scared as hell. You know, seven figures was the biggest deal I ever did. Hindsight being 2020, my advice to people that are, you know, just getting started. If you get bit by the bug, figure out a way to go bigger sooner, right? If you own, own or occupy a duplex or even a four family or a three family, you know, you're getting training wheels on how to operate the business and establish that track record. Um, you can jump and do way bigger deals earlier on and be able to, you know, not take 13 years like it took me, but you can do it in two to three years.
and replace your income and walk away from your W-2 if that's what your goal is. Right. Now, I, I love, I want to highlight a couple of things you said, because it's come up so many times. I hope people are picking this up that, you know, it, it's it's got a coin term now. I don't know if it did when you when you did this, but house hacking, everyone, it comes up over and over and over again as the way folks start um, and people start almost on accident. Right. And it's, it's just a great way to get in actually for, for the reasons I, I briefly described in the beginning of this show about the, all the benefits that are available to folks buying personal property, the financing available is much more advantageous than what we're, it, what you're able to go after for an investment property where we're talking about loan to values and that sort of stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. So great way to get started. And I also want to highlight, um, you know, going big, uh, it, and it sounds like that. I, it's always great to hear a single deal kind of change uh, someone's trajectory, but you put in a lot of hard work before that to become, you know, who you are and an expert in what you're doing, uh, probably to unlock some of that opportunity. Um, so I, I, you know, just commend you on all, all that hard work and everything. I, I have a note from our mutual friend Spencer here that <laughs> you. You had turned down monthly rent of 5K. That sounds pretty good to me where, for where I'm sitting. Could you walk us through, what is the story there? Yeah, so he's probably talking about my Monroe Meg's uh, deal. It was a mixed use, uh, mixed use apartment building. It was uh, 24 residential units and two commercial storefronts. You have to understand the context of this. This, this property was two blocks away from my house. Okay, mm -hmm. so there's one, there's one major thing that's important there. The unit mix was... There was a rent -a center there. Okay. If people don't want to know what rent -a center is, it's probably a good, a good thing, but you know, they're a very, uh, in my opinion, predatory company that preys on low income people. Um, and I mean, rents them crappy furniture and, um, at really, really high interest rates. Um, and then the furniture falls apart and then they like end up, you know, repossessing oh, yeah. them and suit and suing those people, you know? So it's just like, it, and they were there, they occupied 4,000 square feet of uh, storefront retail space. They're paying $2,000 a month. Um, and then there was a uh, nail salon next door. And this nail sa salon was probably, there was probably a little bit of human trafficking going on in, in there. Um, so my whole business plan was I was going to boot both of those tenants out and reprogram the retail on this mixed use deal. Uh, mixed use properties are really interesting, especially if you are buying them sort of on the fringes of a neighborhood. Like I, I live in a good neighborhood. This one's in an okay neighborhood. And this property, it had a nickname with code inspectors as the little shop of horrors. There was, when I did my due diligence walkthrough, there was people passed out in the hallway with needle, needles sticking out of their arms. Like this is a pretty bad, bad deal. So my whole business plan was you can really change the complexion of a property by reprogramming its retail mix to essential services that are going to bring vitality, street level vitality to a neighborhood. So anyways, that was the the long story. So um, Rent-A-Center had about three years left in the lease when I originally bought this deal, but they had a five-year renewal option. And that renewal option was not defined in terms of price per square foot. That was to be negotiated with the land, the landlord and the tenant um, at, that, at that time. So anyways, they were paying 2000 bucks a month. They reached out to me, hey, can you give us a proposal for an ex, you know, a new uh, five-year lease. So I just told him, I was like, all right, well, it's, uh, and I was legally bound to do this, right? As mm. per the lease. So I was like, all right, well, if you want to stay, it's $20,000 a month. They were paying $2,000 a month. Um, it was my sort of like FU kind of thing there. Right. So, um, so then uh, they came back and they're like, oh, okay, well, we can't do that, but we can do, um, we can do four, we can do 4,000 a month. I was like, okay, well, 
maybe I'll do $15,000 a month. I, you know, I'll, I'll come down to $5,000 a month. So there's a negotiation thing there. And then they got up to about uh, close to $8,000 a month in terms of where their top tops was, right? And I countered them back at $12,000 a month. And they said, we can't afford that. We're going to move. Um, so that's where I turned down a $5,000 a month rent increase on that property. The key was is that because this was more of like a repositioning project that I was going to, you know, um, now like we have a we have a crumpet shop on the first floor where the nail salon was, which is a, a an amazing community asset. They like do these like British pastry things there. I bring my daughter there all the time. Um, she's three years old. She loves it. And we have a vintage clothing shop where they do a lot of community events where they do mm -hmm. bicycle socials and stuff like that. With mixed use deals, the the you can't look at the retail, especially in a tertiary market, you can't look at the retail as driving the whole value for the building. What you do is you program the retail to add value to the residential. Right. That's where you make your your money and help turning a neighborhood into someplace that looks nice and the shop, you know, the shopkeepers or business owners take care of it. So yeah, so um I did this deal, you know, I didn't have any partners on it. I raised the money from private money lenders. It was a debt deal and I brought a bank in on it. If I had a partner on that deal, he probably either would have killed me or sued me for turning down that deal. That's $60,000 a year and almost a million dollars in in valuation that that deal would have added to it. But mm -hmm. it wasn't about, I was like, hey, this is already a win. Like, I don't need to knock this thing out of the park. It's two blocks away from my house. So that's the mm -hmm. reason why I, why I did that deal. I love that. It really highlights the ability that real estate can have to transform a community. And I'm curious to hear about the appreciation of the asset now with all these uh, ethically, you know, uh, acceptable really tenants in place. I yeah. So um, we originally bought the deal for $750,000. Um, we put about three hundred fifty dollars to 400000 into it. Um, in renovations and repositioning the property. Um, the most important thing too is to renovate to where the community needs are. So we we did a lot of value engineering. I was like, we have to have these apartments be around $800 a month in rent, okay? Um, for there to be that sort of sweet spot for affordability with that neighborhood. Affordability in terms of where people that are gainfully employed make well over three times monthly rent that are going to go in there and help start, you know, like reactivating this building. After we were said and done, um, the property reappraised for 1.6 million. So we were able to refinance the property, take our private money lenders out. Now we have it. It's a great cash flowing asset. That deal alone is going to pay for both my kids' college educations or private mm -hmm. school if they decide to, if they decide to go to private school and all of our vacations and trips that we take throughout the year. You know, I, I didn't need any more out of that uh, out of that yeah. deal. It, it's such a win-win, right? Because we talk a lot about DeRosa Group's, you know, our trademark is transforming lives through real estate. We really believe in transforming community and making it a better place, safer place, and uh, all the impacts that can have on the fam families. You're, in your case, one of those families just two blocks away. Mm -hmm. And there's, uh, you know, such an ethical reason to just do good out there and, and do well. Right. Um, but also there's usually a financial benefit when you, when you make, when you implement those, those practices as well. And it's just, you know, it, it's, it's, it couldn't be real estate really can be a win-win when it's done the right way. So uh, just love that story. You got to think long-term too. Um, so I think that if you think of long-term value for all stakeholders, you as the investor will make more money. Period. Full stop. And this is a challenge with, you know, the capital markets and real estate finance is that 
we can be a long-term operator with a long-term 20, 30 year vision. But the problem is, is that our capital markets, our capital partners think right. five years is a long-term. Right. So that's where the tail can wag the dog in uh, f forcing us there. So, you know, sometimes, you know, we raise money for, you know, equity, equity partners on some of our larger deals, multifamily and office and that sort of thing. Um, but for deals like this, like I'm putting them together where I'm owning all the equity so that I can actually be the one that thinks really long term. So I don't have that five year tail wagging the dog. That's a really great point. Earlier in our conversation, we're talking about how the benefits are going bigger as as soon as you're ready, really, as you as you gain experience and expertise. Uh, going bigger will behoove you, you know, financially. Um, but, it, you know, it, it's, it's important to say that uh, folks, one way to get bigger is through partnership. And a lot of times people can partner their way out of equity in a deal that they've worked very, very hard to put together. Uh, I have a question about that. Um, how do you, how do you look at though? Because bringing in partners, you can leverage their expertise, right? And in a good strategic partner also could lessen your, um, the oversight required on your end, what kind of calculus are you doing to d decide, is this something I could take on by myself or should I bring in a partner? Do you pretty much try to take down everything yourself? How do you approach that thought? I mean, I've been doing this for 17 years. Um, when you get enough experience and you'll probably hear this out there is like, I have no calculus. I go a lot by feeling. I mean, for instance, you know, the government office building that we purchased, um, we originally, uh, put that out to our, our investors at a, I think it was a 9% preferred rate of return. And this is completely pl private placement. We don't have to worry about the numbers here. Um, but, and a uh, 9% uh, preferred return, five-year term and a 19% ownership interest in this building, right? We got a full subscription from one of our investors. We got another offer from another investor who was an experienced developer that brought a lot of experience to the table that wanted 10% preferred rate of return and 30% equity on this joint venture. And we went with that deal because he brought way more experience to the table than we did on other stuff that we want to do in the future. If you're looking at my background here, this is one of our, this is one of our buildings. This is, this is an abandoned, um, this is a virtual background. I'm not, this is not my studio, but this building is an old historic gum factory. And this developer that we partnered with on this government office deal, like has done tons of deals just like this. So right. they can bring a lot of advisory value to, um, to you, to help you, to help you, uh, grow. And also they can bring their balance sheet too, which was also important with this right. and yeah. their balance sheet on that deal actually gave us halo effect on two other deals that we were refinancing with the same, with the same bank that he wasn't even a partner with that. We got much better rates in terms on other deals that he had nothing to do with because we brought him in on that on that one deal and had that track record with that lender. That's a really good point because if your strategic partner is an expert in an area where you want to go, there might be more reason to to make a partnership even if you're not financially re required to. Mm -hmm. um, and that, I think that's, that's uh, you know some pretty good advice there. Um, I also I was going to ask you about the background. I, so what is the plan with that gum factory? now so this is a property that is uh, uh right next door to another property that we own which is a um which is a historic car factory and we um purchased purchased that we we redeveloped it into um mixed use um some fitness use artist studios there's a vintage clothing shop and a and like a very very like kind of hipster barbershop that's in there uh, it was a mm -hmm. building that was vacant for 40 years 
this building came up in the market and we purchased it for strategic reasons because that share is a huge parking lot between both of the buildings. With these buildings, you have a vision, you have an idea of what it might be, but you don't know until you find the right tenant partner. We're in pre-development on this uh, property right now. When we have, you know, uh, slack in our, you know, manpower, we'll send them over to do, you know, special projects in terms of, you know, uh, fixing windows and that sort of thing. But, uh, but we don't know yet. We want to, we want to reactivate it. I think that worst comes to worst, you know, maybe three years from now, if we don't have, you know, somebody to take it, cause this is a 16,000 square foot building. Um, it would make a great like brewery or distillery or urban winery or whatever. Um, then we'll probably either turn it into residential and do a historic te- historic tax credit project on this. Because um, at that point in time, this neighborhood, there's about $80 million worth of developments happening right next door. Um, mm-hmm. So at that point in time, I think that we'll be able to have the calculus to do a residential like, you know, luxury loft apartments. Amazing. Yeah, it's interesting to hear that, you know, how many exit strategies you have. I'm sure that definitely inspired you, kind of made you confident going towards this. Curious, though, uh, when you're looking at stuff like this, how do you project out the financial performance uh, kind of without that vision, you know, fully fleshed out? Yeah. So uh, like on this building, for instance, we ran three different scenarios. The the number one most, most important thing is that these types of projects take years to do. So first thing you want to understand is what is my cash burn? <laughs> okay. Because you're going to burn through cash in terms of just holding onto the property, you know, paying a mortgage payment on it. Cause we got a private mortgage on the, uh, on the property It's a 20 year private mortgage. And so, um, and then we'll run the three scenarios in terms of, okay, well, we rent it to one user that's going to take the entire building. You know, we'll look at co- rent comps in terms of price per square foot and do our projections based upon that. Um, the second scenario is, uh, demising all these spaces down right here. If you're, you know, see, if you're seeing this in podcast land is dividing them into artist studios. There's actually a very strong, uh, demand for artist studios in the Rochester area. Rochester has a really, really strong creative community. And then the third is our, you know, the, the worst case scenario is residential, which happens to make the most money, but involves the most risk. Uh, so that's kind of like where we do where we do that and figure out in terms of capex and financial performance after stabilization um, in yeah. terms of those three scenarios. Does it involve does multifamily involve the most risk because that's the the highest cost to reposition the the asset? I'm curious so, why it's the most risk. It's the uh, it's the redevelopment cost. So right. I mean, this would be if we converted this building to residential, it wouldn't even it wouldn't even be a repositioning. It would be a total redevelopment. Um, it would be a historic adaptive reuse. So now you have you have construction risk in terms of cost overruns. Um, you have also lease up risk because your pro forma is in a new mark in a new market. Like there isn't you know a ton of loft you know luxury loft apartments that are right next door that we can draw rent comps on and say if we provide a new product, maybe we can get five percent above where you know these ones that were are currently trading that were renovated. 15 years ago. We don't have that. So we have a substantial amount of lease up risk as well. So when you calculate the risk adjusted returns, that's where, you know, multifamily, re, you know, redevelopment on this deal is the is the least desirable in our opinion. So, right. but that's like sort of our 
that's sort of like our worst case uh, worst case scenario. Uh, it's not a totally round peg square hole, but it's you know it's a oval oval peg circle hole or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Matt, I, I know you're busy. I really want to thank you for your time, but but first, folks, I hope you got a lot out of this. Matt's super knowledgeable, has his hands in lots of different stuff, and has been at it for a little while. So give us one last second to uh, put questions in the comments if you guys have them. But Matt, while they're doing that, please tell folks how they can reach out to you. How, how can they look into what you're up to and, uh, and get a hold of you? Absolutely. Um, I'm on all, you know, I'm pretty omnipresent on social media. So I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, I also have a, a weekly podcast called the Go Big Live Real Estate Investors Podcast. And that show target audience is investors that maybe have a few deals under the belt that are wondering how to go big. So um, I actually have Matt Faircloth on my show next week, and we're going to talk about his first oh, deal. Oh, funny. Okay. Yeah. Uh, his first deal, how yeah. you know how he found it, how he raised the capital for it, how he you know brought it full circle, and the lessons he learned in that. So we really got to go very, very much down to the tactical type of stuff there um, on that on yeah. one particular deal. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, you can find me uh, um, at any of, those, any of those places. I'm happy to connect. I'm happy to talk to anybody about, I'm evangelical about real estate in case you haven't you know, noticed. So I'm, I'm willing, willing to talk to anybody and, uh, and probably talk their ear about, uh, off about it. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm the same way. Happy to. Right. So thanks again for your time. Uh, I mean, love to hear the show. I think that's so important for folks to hear about the first one, because it could be so overwhelming when, when you hear uh, about all the success at one time in, in 40 minutes of a, of a podcast, right. And, and uh, trying to put yourself in those shoes, it's hard to imagine sometimes. So mm -hmm. um, thanks again for your time. It's been great. Uh, I'm going to let you out and uh, kind of close the show up here. Hey, take care. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, of course. Great for having you. All right, everybody. That was Matt. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, really great show. I hope you guys got a lot out of that. To recap real quick, firstly, you know, want to talk a little bit about personal finance, how it's the first step of getting your first real estate deal done, especially your first real estate deal done, but uh, every deal thereafter as well. Uh, some interesting statistics there and, and news there, right? Uh, and then we had a really great guest on, talked about every, you know, all the stuff he's up to, potential office space. But what I got out of it was that he's able to pivot. He's able to pivot because of his expertise that he's built and the relationships he's built and uh, a, a history of success. So I hope you guys can take that. I hope you have a great weekend and I hope to see you next week as well. Hey guys, Matt Faircloth here. Thank you for listening again to the Cashflow Digest. I really appreciate you guys doing that. If you guys want to hear more about what DeRosa Group has to offer, go to DeRosa Group, D-E-R-O-S-A group.com, DeRosagroup.com online. You can hear about all the great things that we offer from an educational standpoint and passive investment standpoint on our website. See you there. And if you guys want to join our online community, DeRosa Insiders on Facebook, where you can watch this program get recorded every Friday at noon Eastern, and you can come on as even a guest or ask questions on the show. We hope to see you guys on our online community, DeRosa Insiders. See you there.